Hello again, uh, this is Bob Palmieri, uh, back to talking about the highlights of the book Sociology uh, by Richard Schaefer. Uh, just so you know, we're going to chapter 7, chapter 6 is out. My decision to eliminate chapter 6, just so you know. If uh, you want to uh, send me a text of what's going on with that, I'd be happy to answer you. But uh, let's just say it's not relevant to um, what I believe we should be learning. Anyway, Chapter 7, The Mass Media. Something that controls our lives. Whether you want to admit or not, admit it, uh, the mass media has everything to do with how certain things are thought about. The idea of how they influence us. So uh, let's start by just saying uh, uh, the basic formation and uh, definition of the mass media. Um, it refers to uh, all print and electronic means of communication that carry messages to widespread audiences. And that includes everything, ladies and gentlemen. Newspapers, magazines, books, electronic media, including radio, satellite radio, television, motion pictures, and the Internet. Advertising, which falls in both categories, is also a form of mass media. Think about it. Think of all those different ways in which the mass media affects your life. From uh, reading a book uh, such as uh, Dr. Schaefer's book, watching the TV program, listening to your favorite music, critical analysis of, uh, of things that you like, uh, that you hear, that you don't like, when someone says something that you don't agree with. How does that shape you? Again, sociology is a scientific study of human behavior and how we do things and what the result is. Let's always keep that in mind. I continue to say that your foundation, uh, direct reflection of sociology is the mass media. Let's go on. Uh, there's a few things that the mass media does uh, and uh, its perspectives, shall we say. Uh, one of those perspectives uh, you would find on page 141 of, um, of the 12th edition of uh, Dr. Schaefer's book, it's an agent of socialization. Well, if we understand what socialization means and basically uh, being social, interacting with people, whether you know them or don't know them, mostly we interact with people we know, but we certainly interact with people we don't know. But isn't the mass media an agent of socialization? Aren't there programs that you can't wait to watch at nighttime? Think about it. We all have favorites. Isn't there music that you are more relatively uh, 
accustomed to hearing or listening to than you would some other type of music. Remember, mass media covers everything. Watching the news, um, listening to your favorite bands, uh, watching a movie, watching a documentary, reading something that influences you in one way or another. The mass media is always there. Mass media is also an enforcer of social norms. Doesn't the mass media have a, a direct or an indirect influence on their opinions about how we should act and react? Doesn't the, doesn't the mass media affirm proper behavior? What type of behavior uh, is accepted in the United States? Mass media certainly tells us. And they tell it to you in a particular way, so they want to test whether or not you understand proper behavior. Mass media is also uh, very much involved with the critical role of human sexuality, for sure. All you have to do is go to a movie. All you have to do is turn on your television. Think about the programs you have watched and the sexual innuendos that uh, come upon us in a critical situation. The mass media are the ones that put those, those things in front of you on a TV screen, on a movie screen, on your laptop screen, on your phone. And I'm talking about all forms of human sexuality. All forms. And how do they influence you? Scientific study of human behavior, my dear friends. Another uh, situation that uh, Dr. Schaefer talks about, uh, a couple of them actually on page 144, uh, narcotizing dysfunction, a narcotic dysfunction. And uh, Robert Merton uh, and Paul Lazefeld, who are great sociologists back in the late 1940s, came up with this narcotic dysfunction, uh, which refers to the phenomena in which the media provides such massive amounts of coverage that the audience becomes numb and fails to act on the information regardless of how compelling the issue. How many times can you hear about things that are going on in government where it makes you a bit apathetic? You may still believe and have the idea of fighting the good fight and needing a change. That's also part of the mass media, obviously. But how many times do you need to hear that 
before uh, there's a dysfunction. Mass media is the narcotic of that dysfunction. Several years back now, Michael Jackson passed away. I bring up his name because for months, months, Michael Jackson was in the news. I like Michael Jackson. Great performer. But isn't there a time where we get numb to the idea of having the repetitive scenario of someone who dies? Of the repetitive scenario of how bad it is or how uh, unhelpful the government is treating us on a city, state, or federal level? How many times do we need to hear it? Again, I'm not telling you not to act on it. I'm not telling you not to have an opinion. But isn't there times where you become numb to the process? The mass media does that. Gatekeeping. Gatekeeping is is a... um, interesting concept in the mass media uh, and let me tell you what Dr. Schaefer says about gatekeeping the term describes how material must travel through a series of checkpoints or gates before reaching the public all the news you hear that's coming from Europe and especially from places in the Middle East and especially if we want to talk currently from Syria All that information goes to a gatekeeper, first of all, from the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. They have a group of people who read those stories before they're even printed here in the United States. Make sure that what the reporters are writing is something that that the that we want uh, that the gatekeepers want to make sure that our that are not so inflammatory or so disgusting that uh, we have such a negative reaction. Everything that happens in the mass media has a gatekeeper, a checkpoint. If it's a TV program, they they redo a scene. 5, 10, 15, 20 times. Speeches by politicians are read and reread and and scripted out and edited uh, to make sure that they are uh, sending their message to the audience that they're in front of. Gatekeepers. Gatekeepers. So I want to talk about something uh, in the final analysis uh, of this chapter, which seems to me to be uh, what we should be talking about anyways. Let's talk about the audience. We're the audience, aren't we? But who really are we? It says that, uh, Dr. Chavis says that uh, 
The mass media are distinguished from other social institutions by the necessary presence of an audience. It can be uh, identifiable. It can be finite, such as the audience at a jazz club or a Broadway musical or a larger undefined group such as VH1 viewers. People who read USA Today. I don't read USA Today. But I do read the New York Times. I do read the Boston Globe. What do you read? What influences you? And what part of the audience are you? And uh, Dr. Schaefer says this, which I think is very pertinent to this whole chapter. Uh, this you'll find uh, on page 153, uh, bottom left-hand side. He says, uh, we can look at the audience from a level of both micro uh, micro sociology or macro sociology. On the micro level, we might consider how audience members interact amongst themselves. At the macro level, we might examine broader social consequences of the media, such as early childhood education delivered through a program like Sesame Street. The media knows how to manipulate on all levels. And I'm not saying that manipulation is a negative scenario. I'm saying they know how to get their message across. And if it helps you, great. If it doesn't help you, that's okay too because you learn from things that don't help. Now about uh, the audience behavior. What goes on with the behavior in an audience? What is it that they search for? And more than anything else, whether we're at a play or at a movie or home watching um, a movie on TV or listening to music or reading a book, it doesn't matter. Those parts of, uh, of the mass media that really come directly in contact with us, what we become are opinionated people. We have an opinion about something, which is a positive thing. Because those opinions influence other people. And the people who are the opinion leaders on these television stations are in movies are people who are writing and singing songs. They're the major opinion leaders because they're influencing influencing us in a certain way. So we think a certain way. Uh, albeit it just might be for that moment. But a certain way. So understand that. The mass media is a giant octopus with tentacles everywhere. Its influence is worldwide spread from the smallest town in the back of a rural America to the largest urban areas of the world. Proceed cautiously with the mass media. B. 
be our own person with the mass media, but understand the power of the mass media. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon. Um, this is Bob Palmer again. Um, we will delve into now uh, Chapter 8, Deviance and Social Control. And uh, let me start uh, by giving you some general definitions of social control and deviance. Obedience. Um, which would be a good topic to talk about just briefly and see where we go from there. Um, an interesting chapter on how do we distinguish um, social control from deviance. So let's start with that. <clears throat> let's start with social control. Definition. Social control refers to the techniques and strategies for preventing uh, deviant human behavior in any society. Techniques and strategies to prevent deviant behavior. I wonder what those could be. Social control occurs on all levels of our society. So when we talk about deviant behavior or preventing it, I should say, the techniques and strategies that we use to uh, prevent that. All of you may think that that happens just on the, on the idea of criminal law, us obeying the law. Don't be fooled. That is certainly part of it albeit it might be the major part. But remember what Schaefer says here after he defines social control. Social control occurs on all levels of society. So when you read this chapter right after that, I'll tell you the other levels, the other parts of society that control Deviant behavior. Does your family control it? Does your workplace control it? Does your school control it? Does your religion control it? Do your politicians control it? There's all levels of social control that we subject ourselves to. Rightly so, because if we didn't subject ourselves to social control, we'd all be vigilantes. We'd all be out there like they used to do in the wild, wild west and have your six-gun and uh, your six-shooter, whatever you want to call it, and just go around, and if you're not happy with someone, you shoot them. Let's remember that. Social control is not just about obeying the law. There's a couple of things here um, that um, I'd like to 
point out, there was a test done, and if you looked into your book on uh, pages 166 and 167, you would see Stanley uh, Milgram's uh, experiment on the learning of conformity and obedience um, happened with uh, shocking people. Uh, when the answer to questions were, were incorrect. An interesting study, which was done um, many years ago. But he does pro- point out two things here that I enjoyed um, about what uh, Milgram had to do um, in relation to his experiments. He um, used the term conformity in a particular way. Uh, in Milgram's way, he states that um, conformity is to mean going along with your peers, individ- individuals of our own status who have no special right to direct our behavior. In contrast to that, Milgram says, obedience is compliance with higher authorities in a hierarchy or a hierarchy of structure, or a hierarchical structure. And he goes on to say, thus a recruit entering military service will typically conform to the habits and language of other recruits obey the orders of their superior officers. Students will conform to the drinking behavior of their peers and obey the request of of campus security officers. Well, I'm not sure that they always obey the campus security officers, but Milgram makes his point. The idea of what conformity is and what obedience is is integral to this chapter. So understand it. And if you have to delve in further with this, uh, Milgram's experiment goes on for a couple of pages. So um, I think you might find that interesting. It goes on a bit here after they talk about Milgram and they talk about informal and formal controls. Informal and formal social controls. Let's know about those. Formal control, uh, uh, casually to enforce laws, are carried out through both informal and formal uh, social control. A formal social control, if I may uh, digress for a minute, is carried out by authorized agents such as police officers, judges, school administrators, employees, military officers, managers of movie theaters. It can serve as the last resort when socialization and informal sanctions do not bring about desired behavior. I would add parents to that list of judges, officers, police, authorized agents. Maybe that's what they mean by parents, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what Schaefer meant there. But certainly parents should be put into that category. Uh, a 
an interesting pay, pay, uh, picture. It's on page 168. Uh, if you have a chance, look at that. And briefly, um, how about the law? How about the law? Uh, talk about the idea of how we uh, have come to understand what deviance and how we socially control that. Um, the law. The law, it says here, may be defined as a government social control. Some laws, such as uh, pro. Uh, Probation, uh, prohibition, excuse me, against murder are directed to at all members of society. Others, such as fishing and hunting regulations, primarily affect particular categories of people. Sociologists see this. See the creation of laws as a social process because laws are passed in response to a perceived need for formal social control. Sociologists have sought to explain how and why such a perception arises. In their view, law is not merely a static body of rules. Law is not really just a static body of rules handed down from generation to generation. Rather, it reflects continually changing standards of what is right and what is wrong and how violations are to be determined and of what sanctions are to be paid. I'll add something to that right and wrong thing. Helpful and unhelpful would be something else. So if it's right or wrong, and it's it, it should be either helpful or unhelpful for us at the same time. Uh, deviance. Let's talk about deviance for a minute here, since that's the direction we're going in. Social control and deviance. Deviance. Definition. The behavior that violates the standards of conduct or expectations of a group or society. The expectations. Those standards of conduct that have expectations in your society. What are those? Listen, we have all... uh, gone well past the age of reason, by the way, um, which is five years old. You learn right from wrong by the time you're five. But at times, I think that we don't understand the expectations of the conduct that we present. Because society has a particular expectation on how you should act and react. Are they all perfect? No. But if we can put them under a general umbrella, as long as we don't uh, violate those laws, I think we're pretty safe. You may think that some of these laws are not logical. Some of these laws may, in your opinion, have a particular emphasis on a particular group. That may be true. But what is also true is that the laws still exist. 
whether we like them or we don't like them, we can voice our opinion and try to change the laws, yes. But while those laws that you don't like are still in existence, you must obey them or pay the consequence. You want to be deviant? Then the social control will come down on you. I would urge you to read about deviance in this chapter. And I would pay special attention to deviance and the social stigma of deviance, which is on page 172. Deviance and technology, also a very important part of the idea of what deviance is and what the results are. Emil Durkheim, on page uh, 173, uh, uh, gives us a little view of punishments that have been established, and he focuses his sociological investigation mainly on criminal acts. In his view, the punishments established within the culture, including both formal and informal mechanisms of social control, help to define acceptable behavior and thus contribute to stability. And if that's not what we're talking about, then we're in the wrong business. On the old courthouse in Worcester, Massachusetts, on 1 Main Street, at the top of that old building, which is now on the National Register, by the way. Obedience to law is liberty. Obedience to law is liberty. If you obey the law, you are liberated. A few words that mean a lot. I would ask you to um, read carefully the theories of uh, uh, that you will see on uh, page 174, Merton's Theory of Deviance. Four types of behavior that represented uh, represents deviance. I would ask you to remember those. Um, basically, uh, four uh, four different types. Uh, one is the innovator. One is ritualistic or ritualist retreatists and the rebels. Which one are you? Social disorganization theory, that theory um, comes, comes through from uh, Philip Zimbardo, 2007. Social disorganization theory increases in crime and deviance can be attributed to the absence or breakdown of communal relationships and social institutions such as the family, school, church, and local government. 
if you see any of those things that are, are breaking down in and around the areas where you live or how you are interpreting those values on a, on a local, state, or federal level, social disorganization will reign. Something will happen. Um, there's two different types of labeling. When we label people, we, uh, we have an opinion of who they are and what they do or what gender they are, how old they are, uh, or uh, what religion they are or where, where they come from. So labeling uh, becomes an intricate part of this idea of social control and deviance because we can become very deviant because of uh, how we might label someone. So you'll see those things as uh, labeling as, um, as agents of social control and labeling as sexual deviance. I would ask you to pay attention to those two. A couple other things before we stop this particular chapter. Crime. Crime. Very interesting. And crime should be evaluated as it is on 179 as a violation of criminal law for which some governments, governmental authority, excuse me, applies formal penalties. It represents a deviation from formal social norms administered by the state. Laws divide crimes into various categories depending on the severity. And we should certainly know the difference between being a disorderly person, molesting or raping someone, murdering someone, robbing a bank, dealing drugs, embezzling money, we can go on and on. There are certain levels of crime that are heinous, there are certain levels of crime that just give you a slap on a wrist and make you pay a fine. Understand what crime is. There are several different types of crime. And we'll go over a couple of them, but victimless crime, you'll find that on page 180 along with professional crime. On 181, you'll find organized crime. On 82, 182, white-collar and technologically-based crime. Also on 182, transnational crime. I'll talk just a moment about victimless crimes. We all understand what professional crime is for the most part. You know, some professional has done something on a day-to-day -day basis that is doing harm to a company or to others or to themselves. Professional crime usually is happening um, on a professional level, usually happening most times to other people, to gain advantage illegally. That's why it's a crime. Organized crime. We all remember reading about the mafia years ago. Now you've got gangs all around the world, uh, drug lords everywhere. So we know what organized crime is for the most part. 
white-collar, technologically-based crimes. We certainly understand that with all the controversy uh, on the Internet now and Facebook and Twitter. And um, Are they really committing uh, technologically-based uh, uh, crimes? At the present time, they are not. But there, you may see in the near future laws that are passed that um, Facebook and Google and Twitter and all the others that are on your World Wide Web will be subject to social control if they don't rectify some of the things that they are putting on the Internet. Transnational crime is usually crime that occurs in uh, multiple national borders. But victimless crimes is the one I want you to really pay attention to because it has a different connotation. It says here, on page 180, and I would, um, I would ask you to read, it's only several paragraphs, but I'll read the first one. When we think of crime, we tend to think of acts that endanger people's economic or personal well-being against their will or without their direct knowledge. In contrast, sociologists use the term victimless crime to describe the willing exchange among adults of widely desired but illegal goods and services such as prostitution. Interesting. I would ask you, and I would think that this could possibly be on a on a research essay that you'll be writing. What is victimless crime? If there's no victim, how is there a crime? Is there? And the question might read as follows. Is there anything in the current status of the world population, especially in the United States, that there's no victims? Is there truly victimless crime? That's all for this chapter. Thank you.